The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Passage today is Romans 8, 12 through 17. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children, and if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Now you may be seated. Thank you, Alicia. I think one of the hardest parts about dating is how quickly you can swing back and forth between confidence and doubt. Right, So a date goes well, there's a lot of laughter, there's easy conversation, and you think, this is great, I'm confident we have a future. Then something happens the next day. So a text message doesn't get returned or a phone call goes to voicemail and all of a sudden the doubting begins. Like, is this relationship really working? Like, do we have a future? My heart goes out to those of you in dating relationships trying to figure out the future. It's hard and it's often paralyzing when those, those feelings of doubt and uncertainty creep in. And that's why one of the blessings of a Christian marriage is confidence. We no longer need to doubt whether the relationship is going somewhere. We don't need to wonder if there's a future. We don't need to be uncertain about our status. Because we stood before our pastor on a sunny summer day and entered into a new binding covenant relationship, we can live with a confidence that was impossible when we were only dating. Because of this new relationship, husband and wife, we can and we should live with a confidence that shapes everything we do. Now, if that's true for a marriage between two sinners, then it's even more true for a Christian's relationship with God. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, we have entered into this new binding covenant relationship with God. And this new binding covenant relationship can and, produce, can and should produce confidence that shapes everything we do. One of the reasons this wonderful chapter, Romans 8, was written was to give us confidence as Christians. Too many of us Christians walk through life like the angsty teenager wondering if God is going to dump us, worried that we've been cast aside for someone else. Brothers and sisters, we can and should live with confidence in Jesus Christ. Confidence should shape how we approach each new day, how we face each new trial, how we enter each new relationship. A deep, settled confidence in Jesus Christ should ground us when we feel like the rug has been pulled out from under our feet. It should keep our heads above water when we feel like we're drowning. God wants us to live with confidence in Christ. He wants you, Christian, to live confidently, not in doubt, not in fear, not in uncertainty. 
So here in verses 12 through 17, I want to show you this morning two reasons for confidence and then two reasons we often struggle with doubt. So two reasons for confidence. The first reason is this. You are not obligated to sin. You are not obligated to sin. Look at verse 12. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh. Now, we talked about the flesh last week. Remember, this is the selfish, sinful desires that once ruled us. They're the sinful, selfish desires which are what is, dominates the world and culture around us. He says, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We are not obligated to live according to flesh, or simply put, we are not obligated to sin. Now, we need to ask this. Who is not obligated to sin? Is this a universal promise to all people everywhere at all times? You don't have to sin. Well, the answer is found in those first two phrases of verse 12. The first two words, so then, connect this statement, this truth, to what came before, specifically in verses 9 through 11. And verse 9 refers not to all of humanity, but to a subset of humanity that is not in the flesh, verse 9 says, but in the spirit. The same subset has Christ living in them, verse 10, and has the spirit living in them, verse 11. So the statement in verse 12 is clearly limited to Christians. Those who are united with Jesus by faith, who have been brought from death to life by the spirit of God, who belong to God, these people, Christians, are not obligated to sin. It's further reinforced by the next phrase, brothers and sisters, those who are part of God's family through faith in Christ's atoning work for them are no longer obligated to sin. Now, what does it mean to be obligated? Last year, my family and I moved into a new home. In order to do so, Carrie and I had that wonderful experience of signing a large number of papers, which obligated us to write a check each month for the next three decades. And we are obligated to follow the rules that are laid out in this contract, whether or not we feel like it. So apart from Christ, we all are all obligated to live according to the flesh. We're obligated to follow our own desires and wishes instead of God's. We have no resources within us to cancel the flesh's obligation. Like there's no check we can write that just cancels our obligation to the flesh. But we looked at this last week, verse 4. Jesus Christ could do that. In fact, it says in verse 4, he fulfilled all of the law's requirements for us. He canceled the mortgage. And we're no longer obligated to follow the commands of sin. Now this is important. These verses are not saying something, and they are saying something. So here's what they're not saying. They're not saying that all sinful desire and all sinful opportunity are gone, or that all Christians will live free of sin. Sinful desires are still present in us. We still feel the pull to sin. So this is not denying the presence of sin in the life of the Christian, but it is denying the authority of sin in the life of the Christian. Okay, let me say it again. Sin is still present in our lives, but it is no longer in charge. Now, one of the most helpful pictures 
of this relationship with sin comes from the old British writer G.K. Chesterton. I want you to hear what he wrote. He said, if a rhinoceros were to enter this restaurant now, there is no denying he would have great power here, but I should be the first to rise and assure him that he had no authority whatsoever. So sin in the life of the Christian is like a rhino in a restaurant. It's powerful and destructive, but it's not in charge. It has no right to be there. No one in the restaurant is under the rhino's authority. In fact, everyone in the restaurant should have the very same goal, which is what? Kill the rhino. If they feed the rhino, what's going to happen? It's going to stay, and it's going to grow, and eventually it's going to turn on everyone inside the restaurant. But if they kill the rhino, they will all be spared. Brothers and sisters, we need to kill the rhino instead of feeding it. Look again at verse 13. He says, because if you live according to the flesh, if you feed the rhino, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Oh, so Christians, we don't pamper the rhino. We don't house the rhino. We don't feed the rhino. We kill the rhino. If we don't kill the rhino, the rhino will kill us. So how do we do that? How do we kill the rhino? Verse 13 says we do it by the Spirit. You see, the Spirit not only frees us from the rhino's authority, he also provides the power necessary to defeat the rhino. And how does the Spirit do this? Well, we saw this back in verses 5 and 6 last week. The weapon he uses to kill the rhino is by us empowering us to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Because maybe you're learning these verses, right? To set your mind on the things of the Spirit is life and peace. So the battleground here is our minds. It's how we think what we dwell on. It's what we meditate on. So when we feed our minds with worldly thinking, we are feeding the rhino. And a full rhino is strong. It's powerful. See, the way to starve the rhino is to stop feeding it. The rhino exists on selfish, sinful thoughts. Now, and I want you to be careful here. This is not simply lustful thoughts, though certainly it is those. Not simply angry thoughts, though Yes, he does feed on them. These are selfish thoughts, godless thoughts. Thoughts of finding joy and happiness apart from obeying Jesus. Thoughts of our plans and goals for the day or our plans and goals for our life instead of God's desires for us. Thoughts shaped by the values of our culture, by the commercials we watch and the Articles we read, instead of God's word, these are the thoughts that fuel the rhino. They make it strong and powerful. But the way to kill the rhino is to think about what the Spirit directs our minds to. So we set our minds on things above. That's intentional, right? We set our minds. We, we do something by the Spirit's power. We do something intentional. We set our minds on things above, where Christ is. We set our affections on Christ. We think about what is true and honorable and just and lovely and commendable. The rhino can't digest this type of thinking. It's poisonous to him. So the more diligent we are to meditate on the word of God, 
And I don't simply mean some amount of time each morning which we read, where that is excellent. But throughout the day, what does God want us to do? How does he want us to think? The more diligent we are to do this, the more sickly and emaciated the rhino becomes. I hope over the last few weeks you have read Romans 8 on multiple occasions. Maybe you, as we've encouraged you, are trying to memorize it. Let me just say, memorization is not the goal. Like you may have tried and you're like, I cannot memorize. I used to be able to memorize things so easily. Like before a test I could cram and I'd, I'd remember it all. I can't memorize anything I'm finding anymore. It's hard. So I'm not memorizing as fast as I want to. I think I don't know where we're supposed to be at this point. I know I'm way behind. Maybe you're the same way. But every time I read it, every time I read it, I've weakened the rhino. Every time you've prayed, even if it's brief, even if it's hard, even if your mind's going every place, every time you've prayed, every spiritual conversation you've had with a brother or sister, every time you've redirected your thoughts to what is right, showing up this morning and singing or simply listening to the singing if you don't have the strength to sing. Like This is how we kill the rhino. This is how we live instead of die. So let me ask you, are you feeding the rhino or are you killing the rhino? This week, how will you kill the rhino? Now, the first step is just simply to identify how you're feeding it. We all are. We're all feeding in some ways, and so we've got to figure that out. How am I feeding the flesh? How am I feeding this sin that wants to dominate and control me? How am I feeding it? And we got to stop. So how are you feeding your fleshly sinful desires? How are you feeding worldly thinking? You know, I think we've got to ask the questions we don't want to ask. Is my time on social media feeding the rhino? I mean, I think we all know the answer to that, don't we? Am I so busy that I don't have time to take in God's word? Right? It's God's word, which is poisonous to the rhino. Am I so busy with this event and that event running here and there? I don't have time for God's word. Then change your schedule. Stop being so busy. Make decisions that are hard. Are my choices in music and entertainment strengthening or starving the rhino? So once you stop feeding the rhino, then you've got to intentionally set your mind on things of the spirit. The spirit, listen, the spirit could on its own just wipe the rhino out. But we're told here that's not how he does it. He uses, he uses us. Us setting our minds intentionally on the things of the Spirit. True, right, pure Christian thinking is what the Spirit uses to kill the rhino. How will you kill the rhino this week? Today. So reason number one for confidence, you are not obligated to sin. Reason number two, you have been adopted by God. Verse 14. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons, For you do not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children, and if children, also heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. This chapter begins with no condemnation, and it moves to adoption. We are not merely freed from judgment. We are brought into God's family. 
in J.I. Packer's wonderful little book, Knowing God, he asks this question, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? He writes, the question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as a father. Now, no one is a child of God at birth. No one becomes a child of God by effort or achievement. It comes by God's choice. He chooses to adopt us as his children. children. The Apostle John writes this in the opening of his gospel. But to all who did receive Jesus, he gave them the right. He gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name. Listen, who were born not of natural descent or not because of their family, or of the will of the flesh, not because of their effort, not or the will of man, not because of anything they do, but of God. We become sons of God by God's gracious adoption. Now, I want you to notice the reason that all Christians are called sons in this passage. Instead of sons and daughters, it has nothing to do with sexism or misogyny. In Roman culture, the culture this was written in, a son was the one who received the inheritance. Only men could qualify as an heir. So the statement here that all Christians, men and women, become sons is a radical reordering of status. Women become sons, full recipients of future inheritance in Christ, men and women, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, black and white, rich and poor, all are equal participants in grace. God's family is not segregated by gender. Or race. Now, for the Christian, our status as a son of God is central to who we are. The question, who am I, is answered right here. I am a son of God. Now, all of us have multiple identities. I'm not a psychologist. This is not a diagnosis. It's merely an observation. Okay, we all have multiple identities. We're each a bit like an apple, right? There are certain identities that are the skin of the apple. They are part of who we are, but they can be peeled away pretty quickly. And though painful, it doesn't, like we survive. For instance, our job is like the apple skin. Right? I'm a pastor. You're an engineer, a teacher, a, a baker, a cashier. It's like the skin of the apple. It's part of who you are, part of your identity, but it's not necessarily lasting. There are other identities who are deeper more significant to who you are. They're more like the pulp or the flesh of the apple. You're a son. You're a daughter. You're a husband, a wife, a parent, a grandparent. They are significant, and unlike the apple skin, they cannot be easily peeled away. But they are not the core. At the very center, at the very core is this, I'm a son of God. I'm a son of God. Because nothing can change this. This is the very center. This is the untouchable, unchangeable core of your identity as a Christian. And it cannot work any other way. If you make your job your foundational identity, it's as healthy as eating a hollow apple. If you think your foundational identity is a parent, or a spouse, or a best friend, let me ask you, what happens when that person dies? See, Christian, this is it. Your foundational identity, the one that shapes everything else, is that you are a son of God. Repeat it. Rehearse it. Remember it. 
Remind yourself of it all of the time. Let this form and shape how you do everything else. Let this, this foundational identity determine how you parent. Determine how you respond to your parents. Determine how you treat other people, how you do your job. We are adopted by God and he loves us as sons. This is who we are. We aren't slaves in his house, verse 15 tells us, but we are sons. Not slaves, but sons. Let me ask you, is this how you relate to God? Do you see God primarily as a loving father or as sort of a whip-wielding master? Listen, if we primarily see God as master instead of father, then we will fall back into fear because we will live afraid of messing up. We'll we'll, we'll live afraid of failing, afraid of, of that punishment which just seems to be right there on God, the tip of God's fingers, that he's rather he'd hurl the lightning bolts at us. When we fail, if we feel view God primarily as master and not father. Listen to this. When we fail, we won't go to him for help. We will run from him and try to fix it ourselves. We'll try to clean up our act so that God won't punish us instead of running to our father to help us in our time of need. Listen, this is a terrible way to live. This is a terrible, unloving, this is a terribly unloving way to respond and relate to a father who loves you. See, if we understand that God is our Father and that He loves us, then our lives won't be dominated by a fear of failure. When we fail, when we struggle, which we will fail, we will struggle, but we won't shrink back to Him. This is what verse 15 tells us. Instead, we'll call out to Him in tenderness and affection. We'll yell for our Father, come, help me, come, rescue me, Father. You see, the difference between these two views of God one as a loving father and one simply as a whip-wielding master. This is what fuels the story of the prodigal son. Right, so it's a story of two sons. One, the younger son. It says he squanders all of his inheritance, basically tells his father, I wish you were dead, I want my money now, takes it, and he spends it in the King James Version in riotous living. But at some point it occurs to him his father is loving it says he, he returns, ready to apologize, ready to do whatever he wants, and the father runs out to him, wraps him in his arms, celebrates him. You see, but the older brother does not understand this. The older brother refuses to enter this party, welcoming his brother back. And when, he, when the father comes out there, in his love and in his grace, the father comes out to him to bring him into the party, to bring him into the celebration. The son says, like, haven't I always been here for you? Haven't I always done what you wanted me to do? You see, one views the father as a father, and one views the father as a master. And so one's relationship is one of a love and affection, and the other is fear and manipulation. You see, that older brother did not understand what it meant to be a son, to be loved by his father. Do you understand? Do you understand, Christian, what it means that God loves you? He's your father. Do you see that God's disposition towards you is one of affection and delight and pleasure? 
these verses reveal an intimate relationship between a father and a son. It says we can cry out to him in desperation. He will respond. Even when we don't know what to say, even when all we can do is cry out his name, he hears and he helps. Now listen, our confidence as sons, it comes from knowing that our position as sons was not earned by our achievement, and that means it cannot be forfeited by our failure. Do you see that? Because we didn't earn our, our position as sons, but yet it was, it was given to us out of grace, that means nothing you and I do can forfeit it. Because our hope is not in ourselves. Verse 16 tells us our hope is in the Spirit who testifies to the Father on our behalf. The Spirit of God is a witness to our adoption. He was there when the paperwork was signed. And that guarantees we'll be accepted. So if the Spirit of God is testifying to God on our behalf, then who can stand against it? I think sometimes we believe the whispered lie that God doesn't really love us and that one day we'll stand before him and he will reject us. In our sin, in our struggles, in our shame, we believe that maybe, maybe really he won't accept us at the end. But I want you to hear this. Here's what verse 16 is telling us. At the end, it's not you who's testifying that you belong to God. God will not call you before you and say, okay, prove to me you belong to me. Testify you belong to me. What it says is we will walk in there and the Spirit will say, don't worry, I've got it. And he testifies for us. Oh yes, I was there when you adopted this one. He belongs to you. His word will win the day. Now, verse 17 tells us that one benefit of our adoption is a glorious inheritance. We're really not going to talk about that this morning. We'll talk about that much in the weeks to come. A glorious inheritance that comes. But another benefit is a family. I want you to notice this in verse 16, that it uses plural pronouns. It says, we and our. We together are God's children. And one of my professors, he told the story of his adopted son's first Christmas. So his son was adopted from Ethiopia. This was their very first Christmas. And he said this, he said, when I walked with my son into his grandparents' home in Virginia, my son turned to me and he asked in broken English, Papa, are all these people our family? He said, I said, yes. Then he said he was beginning to understand that when you get adopted, you not only get a new dad, but you get a new family. I want you to look around you. I'm not just saying that. That's not rhetorical. Like, really, look around you for a second. It's okay. Look all around. If you belong to Jesus, you belong to a family. These are your brothers and sisters. They, too, have been adopted. And they are a constant reminder of your father's love for you. He loved you enough, not simply to bring you into his home, but to bring you into his family. And he has surrounded you with siblings to strengthen and encourage you. Listen, we can live with confidence because we are no longer obligated to sin, but also we have been adopted by God. Now, here's the deal though, right? We don't always live with confidence, do we? Like we, we think about this and we're like, that seems so appealing, but it also seems far from how I often live. 
I want to quickly point out two reasons that we struggle with doubt instead of living with confidence. Here's the first reason we doubt. It's because of sin. So verse 13 about putting sin to death is connected with verse 14 about being led by the Spirit as a son of God. The Spirit is the one who leads us to put sin to death, and he's the one who assures us we've been accepted by the Father. However, when we don't listen to his leading, and instead of following him, we feed the rhino, guess what? We will also struggle to hear his assurance. Sin is like static on the radio. It makes it very difficult for us to hear the Spirit's voice. Let me put it very bluntly. If you are feeding the flesh, you won't walk in confidence that you belong to God. If your thinking is dominated by the flesh, God will seem distant. Now, I want to make a very important distinction between feeding sin and fighting sin. See, when you are feeding sin, God will, become, will seem distant for this reason. You're, you're walking away from him and his voice instead of walking towards him. So the Spirit's calling you, he's leading you, and you're turning and walking the other way, and you feel distant because you're not walking towards him. But the same is not true when you're fighting sin. When you're fighting sin, even if it's hard, even if it feels like you often lose, even if it's ongoing and you fall down over and over and over again, in those moments, God is near to you. I want you to hear these very helpful words from Dane Ortland. He says, what we must see is not only that Jesus is gentle toward you. Listen to this. This is so, so good. But he is positively drawn toward you when you are most sure he doesn't want to be. Can you hear that? This is Jesus. When you are most sure you repel him because of your sin. That is when he is most drawn to you. It is in your pockets of deepest shame and regret that his heart dwells and won't leave. Feeding sin causes a doubt, but fighting sin brings confidence. Listen, only those who belong to God fight sin. The fact that you are waging war with your selfish, sinful desires is a sign that you belong to him. So don't allow your ongoing battle with sin to cause you to doubt. The ongoing battle is proof that you are led by God's spirit, verse 14, and therefore one of God's sons. Listen, if you are struggling with doubt this morning, if you are fearful that God might cast you out, or you uncertain if you belong to him, then I would encourage you to ask to consider whether you're feeding the flesh. See, if you're regularly nourishing, nurturing a a worldly, self-centered view of the world, if you're coddling actions and behaviors you know are sin, if you ignore what God says, you won't live with confidence. But here's how confidence will come. Repent of your sin and begin to kill the rhino by setting your minds on the things of the Spirit. First reason we doubt is sin. Here's the second reason we doubt. It's because of suffering. I think this is how our mind works. So we hear, we read, we study a passage like this, this truth of adoption, inheritance, and this sounds good. <laughs> like, yeah, sounds great. But later today, later this week, the difficulties and the troubles of life intervene and in our frustration, in our pain, in our anguish, we wonder if it can really be true that God loves us and that we belong to him. Deep inside our hearts, we ask, 
Can I really be a son of God and suffer like this? Have you ever wondered that? Can I really be a son of God and suffer like I'm suffering? I want you to see how verse 17 ends. It says this, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we also may be glorified with him. Can I really be a son of God and suffer like I'm suffering? Maybe the question is backward. Especially since the one and only begotten son of God, Jesus Christ, suffered and died in our place for our sin so that we could be adopted as sons. The question should really be this. Can I really be a son of God and not suffer? Suffering, then glory, is the path of Jesus Christ, and it is the same path for all of the sons of God. John Newton, that wonderful 17th century pastor, songwriter, he asked this question. He says, Can we wish, if it were possible, to walk in a path sprinkled with flowers when Jesus walked on a path sprinkled with thorns? Do we really think Our path as a son of God will be flowers when the path of Jesus, God's only begotten son, was filled with thorns. Now let's admit something. Suffering's hard. And we don't look at a passage like this and say, oh, enjoy it. No. We don't minimize it, but we must expect it. As we will see next week, suffering is a part of life in the sin-cursed world. It is a part of living in dying bodies. It's a part of following Jesus. But for the Christian, suffering ends. It will end. And it will end in glory. There's no alternate destination. We, like Jesus before us, are led by the Spirit through suffering until we reach glory. And suffering should not cause us to doubt God's love for us. In fact, the more we understand who our Father is, the more we understand his sovereign control over all things, the effects of our sin and our union with Jesus Christ, listen, the more suffering can assure us we are loved by God. So Newton wrote a letter one time to a suffering pastor, and he began it this way, and I want you to hear this. This letter has, over the years, greatly encouraged me in moments of suffering. So he sits down and he writes a letter to a pastor, and he says this, At length and without further apology for my silence, I sit down to ask you how you fare. So how are you doing? Then he says this. He says, Afflictions I hear have been your lot, or I've heard your suffering. And if I had not heard so, I would have taken it for granted. For I believe the Lord loves you. And as many as he loves, he chastens. Do you hear what he's saying? I don't know how you're doing, but I've heard your suffering. But if I had not heard, I would have assumed it because I know the Lord loves you. Then he writes, I think you can say afflictions have been good for you. And I doubt not, but you have found strength according to your day so that though you may have been sharply tried, you have not been overpowered. Suffering is not a sign of God's displeasure with you, but a reminder of his love for you. 
He uses suffering to make us more like his son, Jesus Christ. And as we walk the path of Jesus, we will fellowship with him in the hard moments. We see more of him in the dark moments. We learn to love him in the moments of suffering. Now, I said there were two reasons, sin and suffering, which cause us to doubt. But there's actually a third. The third reason is because you may not be a Christian. Right? You could doubt because you're not a Christian. Attending church, doing good works, praying a prayer, getting baptized, growing up with Christian parents, none of these things make you a Christian. Only being united with Jesus, his death in your place, his resurrection from the grave, only united with Jesus by faith makes you a Christian. So if you're struggling with doubt, if you're lacking confidence in your Christian life, then you should take this opportunity to consider whether you belong to him. Are you a Christian? Now, I want to give you some counsel right here. If this is you, and you're wondering, you're doubting, you're uncertain, I found it most helpful, most wise, to process this question with someone else. Don't do this by yourself. We can be our worst enemy many times. And our flesh, that rhino, is still strong. And so process this with someone else. God speaks through his people. And so if you're struggling, then get together with a friend here. Like go to your community group leader, talk to one of the elders, and together evaluate whether you belong to God. Listen, this passage is intended to give us confidence, but not confidence in ourselves. It's intended to give us confidence in Jesus Christ and his saving work. And as we'll see in the weeks ahead, Jesus has done everything necessary to save us, and he will not fail us. He will never let us go. He will not forsake us. No matter what difficulty we face, and as we get to the end of the chapter, we will see a long list of difficulties. But no matter what difficulty we face, Jesus walks through it with us. So this week, let's trust him and live with confidence that we belong to him. Will you pray with me? Father, you wrote these words to give us confidence in Christ, and yet we struggle with doubt. We know that doubt could be for many reasons. It could be, first, because we don't belong to you. And those sitting here who do not belong to you, I pray that today would be the day that you would expose that to them, and then repentance and faith, they will be united with Christ and start to live a confident Christian life walking with him. For those giving into sin, feeding the flesh, I pray that they would make a commitment today with the help of others by the power of your spirit to put sin to death and start to experience the confidence that comes from a life of repentance and faith. Lord, I think especially in this moment for those suffering. It is so hard when we're suffering. It's easy to doubt your love and your grace. And may today they find hope, confidence, certainty, grace to help them in their time of suffering. May their suffering not be to them a sign of your displeasure, but a reminder of your love that you are pursuing them, you are walking with them, and you are doing everything to bring them to a sweeter, more intimate walk with you that you are using the difficulties of this life to prepare for them an eternal weight of glory beyond comprehension. So, Father, walk with us in grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.